1: Joining us here in New York, Steve Weidig, City Private Bank Global Chief Investment Strategist. Good morning to you, Good Steve. morning. Let's talk about the United States. There was so much concern about everywhere else. Now there's just a little bit more anxiety, relatively speaking, as to what is happening here in the United States. Your view, Steve? Well, um,
2: the 3.2% growth rate of GDP that you saw in the first quarter is probably the weakest 3.2% I've ever seen. Uh, we had slowing investment, down uh, consumer durable spending, a decline in housing investment, uh, and you know basically we are in a year post tax cut where we should be seeing some slowing. Now I think that the turn of the year economic data were incredibly weak, uh, and we've rebounded some from that, uh, but we will have a slower growth year uh, than 2018. And that needs to be understood by, by investors. We uh, probably don't want to take any big chances here uh, with shocks, with the yield curve inverted.
1: So looking at the data, the new orders part, the new orders component of the PMI contracting, are you saying what we're experiencing here is an inventory overhang from the last couple of months? We've got to work our way through that a little bit.
2: There was a strong inventory component gain in the first quarter of the year. I think that you know underlying all of this, consumer demand is not immediately weak. It's not... Uh, so unusual, but there's nothing dramatic coming around uh, here on the demand side of the American economy uh, unless, you know, we push some of the levers down and those levers could be financial conditions, uh, credit. Um, You know, fortunately enough, we moved away from some of those shocks. I have no doubt that the American economy could continue to grow through the year, uh, but we have a a few, uh, you know, uh, places to avoid.
0: That's great. And you've got an institutional message where it's like remain common and you got to stay invested. I get it and all that. The fact is in the last number of days, even weeks here, and then over there, and then over there, we've seen discrete economic data, which shows substantial slowdown. Maybe it's Korea exports or this, that, or the other thing. Are you looking at idiosyncratic single data points? for concern or is it a manageable slowdown where I stay invested with confidence? So it's really an issue of regime. And we are are, James Bullard. What do you mean by that? uh, What I
2: mean by that is that Mm -hmm. the there are certain data points that we use to see whether or not we've sort of broken the current cycle things like lending availability. So the the strength at which banks are willing to lend to consumers and businesses, financial conditions, credit markets, these true leading indicators like the yield curve, those things matter. And then the pace at which uh, production looks relative to demand is telling us what's going on right now in the economy. So yes, we will slow down from a 3% growth rate in the first quarter of the year. Uh, in the United States, China's six four was going to have some uh, difficulty, particularly on the uh, the export side, and you know those are issues about sort of the pace of growth. But you're still talking about a pace of growth. You're not talking about breaking the expansion, and we were at risk of that for the first time since the global financial crisis. You know, at the end of last year, I think we moved away from that mm-hmm. that risk, and so the U.S. economy is going to grow two to three percent literally every year, unless it's negative two unless it's a recession. Uh, And, you know, despite the fact that we've had this big rally in the Treasury market, I think a recession would depend, you know, on making some significant policy mistakes here.
1: Steve, overwhelmingly, there is a consensus view that the U.S. outperforms. What are the risks around that very, very consensus view through 2019? Well, for
2: example, we're underweight small cap U.S. stocks you know, they've had the best performance of any asset class, any major asset class over the last decade. Um, They have more leveraged balance sheets. Sure, valuations have come down some, you know, but the whole notion that the American economy can grow as rapidly as it did, you know, from a deep depressed state 10 years ago is is a mistaken view in my point of view. Now, is it time to invest everywhere else where valuations are much lower and business cycles are less progressed, you know, particularly emerging markets? The time will, come we are optimistic certainly in the long run view but we've got to get through this period of strength in the u.s dollar uh, and the risks that the united states poses to those very markets themselves
1: so steve a client comes to you in the last couple of days and they put that dilemma towards you they pose the dilemma the investor dilemma i want to be present for the optimal outcome and prepared for the worst what do i do it's really important if
2: we simply took the best 20 days out of each of the last two decades and say, you know what, we'll time markets, but we're not, we actually missed just simply the best 20 days out of a decade. You turn the best performing asset class equities into a negative return asset class. That's how severe the problem of market timing is. So what do we do? We combine fixed income where we're overweight uh, short duration uh, yeah. U.S. fixed income, in particular, and you can make an argument again: we're fully, yeah. fully weighted long duration. But if you put bonds and stocks together, your ability to endure for right. retrenchments in the markets is much, much better.
0: Folks, what you just heard there is the insight of the week. It is so important. We're going to do it again. Brought to you by Capital Guardian Trust Company, Los Angeles, and the Investment Company of America. In a decade, if you go to cash and you miss how many days? Just 20. 20 days out of 3,650 days roughish, you do what to your return? You go from a
2: solid high single-digit return to a small negative return in U.S. equities. Again, fantastic best-performing asset class uh, of the last two decades you would have still had a negative return. So that's the problem is that when the biggest gains and losses in markets are clustered together, you know, the market drops, you're worried about more, you sell out, and then the market rebounds no. because
0: they're very closely clustered together. I can't convey, John, how important. I mean, I mean, a, literally a business, a Capital Group Los Angeles, was built on what Mr. Whiting just said.
1: Steve Whiting, great to have just you with us on the program extraordinary. this morning. Steve, enjoy the long weekend. Thank you. City Private Bank Global Chief Investment Strategist. To the UK now, where an emotional Prime Minister may announce she will quit as Britain's leader after admitting that she had failed to deliver the one task that defined her time in office, taking the country out of the EU.
3: It is and will always remain a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver Brexit.
1: An emotional Prime Minister just hours ago from 10 Downing Street. I'm pleased to say that Bloomberg's Anna Edwards joins us now. Anna, walk us through the process for the next couple of weeks, perhaps several months, to select a new leader of the Conservative Party and ultimately a new Prime Minister.
3: Yeah, good morning to you, Tom and John. There's a helicopter circling. It's been a very emotional morning here in London. Theresa May, as you say, giving that emotional address. The Maybot finally showing some emotion. The Maybot, the nickname she, she gained for, for not showing much emotion. Uh, so the process now from here is that uh, gone are strong and stable. Gone is Brexit means Brexit. But we need to find a new slogan and we need to find a new leader for the Conservative Party and a new Prime Minister. We start that on June the 10th. That's when the firing gun started if you like for the uh, leadership contest and that usually takes between six weeks and two months perhaps it'll be a little bit less than that this time they've right. been called on by business to get it done quickly but it could take some time to narrow down the field
0: and Edwards I saw the Downton Abbey movie trailer last night the royals show up at Downton Abbey and they have to bring in the old butler to save the day and all that Prime Minister May's got the same <laughs> disaster in eight or nine days The president's going to show up with the first lady, Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., Eric, Laura, and maybe Kimberly in tow, and she's going to sit there and shake hands? How do you envision the horde from Washington showing up and greeting a lame duck prime minister?
3: Well, I suppose there's always the Queen and throughout the Brexit drama, the Queen has been that consistent force, hasn't she? Uh, Keeping well out of the Brexit drama, I should say. Uh, But she is going to be doing a lot of the meeting and greeting with President Trump, so that might take some of the pressure off. But you're right that this is going to be an incredibly um, heightened time of tension in UK politics, and add into that, President Trump, who we already know, in fact, one of the riders in this competition, Boris Johnson, that's who he
0: likes. If you're just joining us worldwide, Bloomberg Surveillance, as we look at the resignation of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. We now go to our Midlands expert, John Farrow, (laughs) with Anna Edwards. To the both of you, how does this play outside the suits and ties? I'm just pleased we've John from Downton Abbey. Well, okay, well, John, (laughs) John, how does this play North.
1: Okay, important question. In Wales. How does the next leadership connect with the Brexiteers? And ultimately, that could be where this pendulum swings. So Anna, the kind of leader that this Conservative Party ultimately wants now, is it A, a Brexiteer? Is it B, someone that connects emotionally with the people in a way that, say, Prime Minister May has not? And does therefore it mean to tick both boxes, it's Boris Johnson?
3: Right. I mean, this, this, there's, there's going to be a fine line that, this, that the, the, these leadership can, uh, candidates are going to have to tread over the next week ahead first, they have to try and appeal to the party, and that's not just the Brexiteers in the party, that's all of the party. You can expect them to all try and behave like states, uh, statesmen and stateswomen and try to bring the party together, but then, once they've made it through to the final two, they go in front of the party membership, who we know are much more pro-Brexit and much more in favour of a no-deal Brexit. So that's when the market could get a little spooked when you get into the final part of this uh, of this process, and they're all trying desperately to appeal to what is probably the Far right of the Conservative Party. Anna
0: Edwards, in the Times of London, Oliver Righteous writes, and the headline is If the past two years were stormy, get ready for the hurricane. What's the hurricane to come?
3: I mean, yeah, there could be many hurricanes still ahead of us, couldn't there, Tom? The hurricane that is. Can we, how on earth do we get to October 31st and do some kind of deal? What if the EU says no to an extension? What if that is the view that the EU takes and then that creates some sort of economic hurricane for the UK? Um, we could end up with a general election. That's still all very much in the mix. What tools will Parliament pull out of the bag to try and stop a no-deal Brexit? We know they don't want one at the moment. Uh, but if the government doesn't table any motions that are amendable, what tools will they have to use to try and express that, to try and stop no-deal Brexit from happening? Will that mean that they declare no confidence in the House and that we go to a general election? All of those things are still possible. And
0: great to catch
1: up with you. Bloomberg's Anna Edwards joining us from... 10 Downing Street. She's going to go hug the cat right now.
0: Why don't you bring in our next guest cuz you can pronounce her name correctly? Oh, it's not can't. difficult.
1: Gabriella Santos joining Gambriela. us now from JP Morgan. Gabriella, great perfect. to see you. Thank it's you very much. You. Let's talk about that data 24 hours and a little bit of anxiety around that stronger US economy that we've all gotten used to over the last decade or so. What are your thoughts on the recent data we've had from America?
4: So this is the April uh, data before the trade tension flare up. And I think very clearly there was a deceleration taking place in the economy relative to last year. We always said last year's 3% growth pace was temporary, and we had already seen even in first quarter GDP. If you look beneath the surface, you saw that the economy was decelerating back to what it was doing before 2018 stimulus, which was much closer to two percent growth. Now we inject some of this trade uncertainty, and the risk is to the downside for the U.S. economy. So we can't be fooled uh, into thinking that trade only matters for China and Europe and Japan. It also matters for a U.S. economy that was already decelerating. The view,
1: Gabby, as you know, is that the U.S. outperforms, that the U.S. economy remains, relatively speaking, resilient compared to the impact the trade dispute will have on the rest of the world. Is it too early to challenge that consensus view?
4: I think it's fair to say that the rest of the world is more export dependent. That's very true for China, Japan, and Europe. So in relative basis, they might suffer more, but we can't say that the U.S. won't suffer at all. The U.S. economy will feel the effects as well.
0: Uh, Gabrielle, you're with us for the, the entire half hour, which is wonderful. I want to talk EM with you later because the markets are moving. John Furrow, I want to open this up to you, and it really goes to the real yield today and the importance of looking at bond markets. John, to you first, the ramifications of a 2-10 spread finally breaking down, is that in the market? I don't think it well, is.
1: Well, the 2-10 spread's a little bit misleading Since because December. actually actually, it's widened a little bit as treasuries have rallied because we've had this aggressive move at the front end.
0: But it's coming back just in the last 10 minutes. Where yeah, I, was, I would be much points. more
1: focused on just how much the front end of the yield curve is actually Fair. rallying and beginning to price in. A You're talking cycle. price
0: up, yield yeah, down. Yeah,
1: the yield coming in even more. So we're in it around 215 <clears throat> at the moment on a US two year. Yesterday, we yeah. were lower than that.
0: I mean, Gabriel, for, from the entire JP Morgan platform, we've basically had stasis in the vanilla yield curve since December of last year. What are the ramifications if we actually break down to a flatter difference in yield between the two and the 10 year?
4: Yeah. So the yield curve, uh, twos, tens, and even the three-month uh, tenure is something we look at to get a gauge of where we are in the business cycle exactly, in the U.S. Yeah. It's one of the indicators. Uh, so we take <clears throat> it, uh, especially this time around, with a little bit of a grain of salt, given uh,
0: a little bit of the
4: artificial come on, come on,
0: I got, uh, anchors there. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine data points at 15 or 16 basis points. If we break down under that, mm-hmm. are we prepared for that?
4: I think ultimately the message I take from the yield curve here in the U.S. is that we are late cycle. It is a late cycle economy. <clears throat> okay. From late cycle to end of cycle, I don't think we can say with certainty, even looking at the yield curve, how long that will take. So ultimately what it's saying to us is we should be right-sizing portfolios now for a late cycle economy, but without being tempted to call the exact end of the cycle. On this
0: Friday, I want to get to EM in our next section. On this Friday, do you look at the U.S. market as a minor correction blended S&P 500, or do you pay attention to corrective even, bear market, tech, semiconductor, the ones that have fallen more, the betas that have fallen more. Hmm. Which do you focus on right now?
4: So we're focusing first in the market as a whole. Uh, and I and I say that because when we look at the PE ratio of the market as a whole for the S&P 500, still at average levels, right? It's fallen a little bit yep. from the record highs we were at, you know, three weeks ago, but it's still hanging in there. And I think the trade tension matters a lot for fundamentals in the U.S. in an economy that is already late cycle so if indeed we do get the probability of trade escalation uh going mm-hmm. further then this multiple for the market as a whole is set to fall further uh so we are paying very very close attention to that it does not feel like the market is pricing in that trade escalation probability to the extent that we think is actually happening
1: gabriella santos of jp morgan i believe is going to stay with us tom yes <laughs> she is
0: Gabriela Santos with us with the interview of the day, the week, and the month on EM. She is J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Strategist. You changed your view. What did J.P. Morgan change? on em
4: so tom i think important right away to mention that our structural long-term view for em has not changed meaning we still think it's an asset class especially on the equity side that will deliver superior returns to u.s equities in the medium term and i mentioned this upfront because we feel that american investors uh, across the board don't seem to have enough emerging markets in their portfolios compared to european investors So just off the bat, about 10% of an equity portfolio we think structurally should be emerging markets. Now, if we imagine we're already there and we think so cyclically, should I be overweight, neutral, underweight? Um, About three weeks ago, we felt like the pieces were falling in place to be overweight emerging markets for it to really outperform by a lot in the short term.
0: And then the trade came along. And
4: then the trade uh, came along. We saw the fire turned up higher, unfortunately. Uh, And the odds have gone up that it's turned up further in the second half of the year. And I think in that okay. environment, EM will underperform, unfortunately. If I'm
0: researching this weekend, I've got a 201K, I'm loaded all U.S., and I 100% agree with you, most Americans are underweight international. Do I want to look as a general statement at international, I know the name's blue chip, or do I want to go esoteric with countries, smaller cap? less familiar names Hmm.
4: so i think within the international space there's emerging markets in europe and japan we feel particularly strongly uh, short medium term uh, for emerging markets i would say relative even to europe and japan within emerging markets i think um you know there's some really interesting stories there we really want to take a look at uh, that would be consumer related stories so not the old school emerging markets commodities and those kinds of names. you're not
0: going to buy a concrete company in Thailand you're going to exactly. buy you're going to buy
4: a, a consumer related theme and consumer related yeah. is pretty broad so it can encompass banks right? If you're all of a sudden going from having no money to actually having some money, you open up a bank account, you buy insurance products. So financials is one way. Yeah. Another one is just consumer discretionary, consumer staples and emerging markets. You have some really competitive brands there mm-hmm. in places like China, India, Brazil. Uh, and then lastly, it's a technology theme as well, which is very, very uh, big and prevalent in Asia, of course.
0: Okay, I'll go with that. Um, <laughs> within this is the arch- Question, do I hedge? I'm in foreign exchange, I'm in EM. Do you subscribe after reading John Norman to a strong dollar theology where you've got to hedge?
4: So in the short term, because of the trade-related related tensions, I do think a strong dollar uh, is likely. And in that scenario, EM does struggle, uh, just even local performance as well. So that's why perhaps our view has changed from overweight EM to more of a neutral call. But really what we find medium to long term is the currency ends up being a wash for emerging markets. Ultimately, what drives EM performance medium to long term is not the currency, it's not even valuation, it's <clears throat> earnings growth.
0: Okay, so I, I want you to partition just one final question, and I know you've got a runoff. You've been very generous with your time today. I want to partition U.S. ownership with familiar big EU Japan names, like, say, Nestle is the mother of all big consumer companies, with the esoteric world of Gabriel Santos what are my percentages there in a portfolio? 50, you know, 70, 10, 10, is it 60, 20, 20? How do you mix that up?
4: So within the equity piece, uh, for us just neutral uh, would be about 65% U.S. Okay. It always makes sense if you're a U.S.-based investor to have a little bit more of a home bias, totally. Yeah. Um, about then add about 10% of that for emerging markets and leaves us about 25% for Europe and Japan.
0: Okay, Gabriel Santos, thank you so much (laughs) to JP Morgan. As they, uh, like a lot of other people, adjust over the last two weeks uh, to the trade outcomes. And of course they are still in flux. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast